0: Second John tonight. We're going to finish um, what we started last Sunday evening in this short little letter. Uh, Before we read it together one more time, I want to remind uh, MCTS students and also any other older folks who would like to stick around, um, you are welcome to stay uh, we're going to be discussing uh, discerning childhood conversions with Pastor Ted. He's going to be leading that discussion tonight. It will be behind me in the MCTS room immediately after the service, probably around 7.15. Let's read Second John again. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one we had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to to His commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver in the Antichrist. Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. In 2003, writing about divisions that were taking place within the Episcopal Church, Atlanta Bishop J. Neil Alexander wrote the following, I hold in mind the great wisdom of the ancient church. If you have to choose between heresy and schism, choose heresy. For heresy is, in the end, just an opinion. And opinions come and go. Schisms, rather, tear the fabric of the body of Christ and is irreparable. For those deeply committed to the body of Christ, breaking fellowship is never a faithful option. Last week in our study of 2 John, we saw that Christianity is about truth and not just opinions. We also saw that the Christian church is formed by and formed around the truth as it is revealed in Jesus Christ. We also saw that John's command to the church is to walk in the truth. And we saw that walking in the truth includes obeying Jesus' commands and loving one another. Well, in light of this, if Bishop John Alexander, J. Neil Alexander, were to sit down with this elder, John the Apostle, I think John would say, no, sir. The great wisdom of the ancient church, of which I am part of the foundation, is this. If you have to choose between heresy and schism, choose schism. For heresy, in the end, is damning. Last week, we looked at walking in the truth from verses 1 to 6. This week, our focus will be on standing for the truth in verses 7 through 11. Here's my outline. I'll go ahead and give it to you in advance. Two points. Standing for the truth means recognizing false teaching. Standing for the truth means recognizing false teaching, verses seven through nine. Number two, standing for the truth means rejecting false teachers. Verses ten through eleven. Let's start with point one. Standing for the truth means recognizing false teaching. Notice how John begins here in verse seven. Not all if you have an NIV, this word is unfortunately left out. It's there in the Greek. It's the word Hati, it means for And if you have an ESV or or maybe a New King James, the word for will be there. And it should be there. Because John is making a case now. He's been writing about walking in the truth and loving one another and obeying Jesus' commands. And now he gives the reason why we are to walk in the truth and obey Jesus' commands and love one another. And the reason that he gives is really the purpose of why he's writing. It's the whole purpose of the letter. Which is, many deceivers have gone out into... The world. So John is saying that the reason why I'm writing, the reason why I'm writing and so concerned with you as a church that you walk in the truth, that you obey Jesus' commands, that you love one another, is because many false teachers have gone out into the world. Now, this "gone out" means that they have left the Christian church; they have gone out from the from the gathering of Christians that to whom he is writing, gone out into the world and began teaching something contrary to what they were initially taught by the Apostle John. They have gone away from the truth. They are now teaching something different about who Jesus is than what John told them. The one who leaned his head on Jesus' breast and spent three years with Him was telling them about who Jesus is. They have departed from that. Well, what are they teaching? Notice verse 7 again. For many deceivers have gone out into the world those who do not Confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. John is not mixing words here. He gives a straight-up rebuttal to these teachers. He says, first of all, they are sympathetic with the spirit of antichrist. They are against the biblical Jesus. Secondly, they are deceiving you. Deception, meaning they are presenting something that's false as it were true. So they don't have it right here. They are tricking you by teaching you something that is contrary to what I originally taught you. Now, when it says, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, what is, what is John thinking of here? Well, Second John follows First John. And in First John, John gives us his theology of Jesus. He gives us his understanding of who Jesus is. And he's thinking mainly of two things. When John thinks about Jesus Christ, according to 1 John, he's primarily thinking of who Jesus is in his person, who's the person of Jesus Christ, and second, what did he come to do? What's the work of Jesus Christ that he he came into the world to accomplish? And these anti-Christian deceivers deny both of those things. They are denying who Jesus really is, and they are denying what he really did. Let's look at what John says in 1 John about who Jesus really is. So turn back a couple pages in your Bible to 1 John chapter 2, verse 22. Notice what John says about who Jesus is right here. John says, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. Pretty clear, right? These deceivers were denying that Jesus was the Christ, that He was the anointed one of God who was promised in the Old Testament to be the Savior. They're denying this. They, they denied that He even came in the flesh. Notice also chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. By this you know the Spirit of God. So you want to know? Whether God's in a a particular form of teaching, here's how you can know. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. In fact, it was in the world already, or John wouldn't have written his letter. 4.15, continuing down in chapter 4, verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we've got Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is come in the flesh, Jesus is the Son of God. Whoever confesses all that is from God. Whoever doesn't confess that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is come in the flesh, Jesus is the Son of God, does not have God. That's John's point. Five one. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. See, one of the things that these Christians were doing was distancing themselves from these other Christians. And he's saying that's not possible. They can't claim to really hold to the biblical Jesus, love the biblical Jesus, teach about the biblical Jesus, and reject true Christians. But that's what they're doing. And John says in in chapter 5, verse 1 here, that whoever does that has not been born of God. Whoever does that is not a genuine Christian. But he not only talks about who Jesus is in this letter, he also talks about what Jesus has done. Let's look at a few verses here. Chapter 1, verse 7. 1 John chapter 1, and verse 7. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. What blood is he talking about here? He's talking about Jesus' death on the cross. So Jesus' death on the cross has to do with the forgiveness of humans, sins against God, these false teachers would deny that. And John is saying this is why Jesus came. Through His blood, He might cleanse us from all sin. Chapter 2, verse 2. He is, that is, Jesus Christ the righteous, He is the propitiation for our sins. That is, propitiation meaning the one who satisfies the wrath of God against our sin. And not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world. So when John thinks of Jesus Christ, the righteous one, and why he came, he thinks of dealing with wrath of God against sin. He says it even clearer in chapter 4, verse 10. Look there. 4, 9, and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest. You see, you want to know how does God love us? How How do we know that God loves us? Here's how John says. That God sent... His only Son into the world. See, the false teachers were denying that, right? They did not confess Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. So God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. How do we live through Him? In this is love, verse 10. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the wrath-removing sacrifice for our sins. What propitiation means. A sacrifice to appease just wrath. This is why Jesus Christ came into the world. According to the Bible, according to 1 John, we see that He is the eternal Son of God who has become flesh, lived a perfect life, Jesus Christ the righteous, to take that perfect life to a cross, die, surrendering His life voluntarily to suffer in our place for our sins the wrath that our sins deserve. That's... John's picture of Jesus in First John. And according to Second John, there are deceivers and antichrists who have gone out into the world and are deceiving people about who Jesus is, why He came, what He's done. Notice, and now you can turn back to Second John, and notice verse 8 and His first command to these Christians in light of who these false teachers are and what they're doing. First two words of verse 8. Watch yourselves. Watch yourselves. Be extremely careful. Be on guard. So that, here's the reason we should be on guard, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Now what's he talking about here? There's a textual variant here. Sometimes you you may be in your Bible. Textual variant is whether or not the word we or you is used. It's irrelevant ultimately. Whether or not John is including himself in this group or whether or not he's just saying you, it's, it's the same truth applies. And what's the truth? He says that if you are deceived by these false teachers, if you embrace what they are saying about the coming of Jesus Christ and it not being for all the reasons that I wrote about in my first letter, you will not inherit eternal life. That's why it's serious. That's what he means by not losing what we have worked for, but may gain a full reward. Some commentators take it this way. They believe that this this doesn't refer to salvation. This refers to the loss of heavenly rewards. So if they embrace this false teaching about Jesus Christ, they will still get to heaven. They will just lose some of their rewards. Baloney. Why do I say that? Because verse 9 tells us, everyone, 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 Christians included, professing Christians included, everyone who goes on ahead, and that's what these false teachers were doing. They were running ahead of the teaching that they had received. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide, remain, in the teaching of Christ. That is the teaching that the apostles gave about Christ. Anyone who does not abide in the teaching does not have God. Whoever does not remain in this teaching does not have God. Which doesn't mean they're going to lose some heavenly reward. It means they're not going to heaven. Period. So it's not just the the winning a full reward here is not just they're going to lose some heavenly rewards and benefits. No, they're not going to have God. But notice, whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. That is, whoever walks in the truth, whoever holds fast to the truth, obeys the truth, loves fellow Christians, that's, been his, that's the teaching here. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. That is, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who receives Him as the Savior, who was sent by God to atone for his sins and reconcile him to God, and who demonstrates the reality of that union by living a life of obedience and by living in love toward fellow Christians, has been born of God and will receive God. Now, standing for the truth means recognizing false teaching. That's been my point here. Now, a few applications here. Number one, we can identify false teaching. You want to know how to identify false teaching? You need to know what the Bible teaches about Jesus Christ, and you need to be able to sniff it out when it's contrary to the teaching of Jesus Christ. The most important thing for us as believers in Jesus Christ is to know Jesus better. To know all that the Bible teaches about Him. To know who He is, why He came, what that's all about. So that, because false teaching centers its attack on Jesus fundamentally. Now, to kind of refresh myself on some some false teaching in the world today. I I decided to take the last couple days and watch a documentary that I've had for for a little while. Um, It's called The Marks of a Cult. And it's written, it's put out by the same group that put out the Amazing Grace DVD series. So if you've seen that or aware of that, this is a very, very helpful presentation. And one of the most helpful things about it is its simplicity in terms of just describing the essence of what um, teaching that, is an error that's part of that, that's not that's contrary to the Bible. How we can detect that, and they provide kind of this mathematical formula. And the mathematical formula is this: here's how we can detect the marks of a cult or the marks of a, of a group of people who have de- departed from the historic Christian faith. They and by cult I don't mean a world religion. I don't mean Islam and Buddha. That's a whole different situation. I mean a group of people that masquerades itself as Christian that would include all the Christian terminology that would buy into all the Christian lingo that would use the terminology but totally redefine it in unbiblical ways. In other words, define it in ways the Bible doesn't define it. And here's how the the creators of this documentary help us detect that. Number one, they talk about addition. That is adding to the 66 books of our Bible. Having an extra biblical revelation, an extra book that serves as an interpretive lens through which and without which we can't understand the Scriptures. That's your first mark. Adding to the Bible. We also have subtraction. Subtracting from the Trinity. Subtracting from God being three in person And one, in essence, usually either uh, just speaking against the deity of Christ, claiming that He was not God, that He was a mere creation of God, speaking as though He was only a man and a good teacher, Uh, speaking against the deity the Holy Spirit, or just saying that there is no such thing as the Trinity. There is no such thing as an eternal God who has existed as one essence in three persons. So that's subtraction. Multiplication. False teachers multiply works that are necessary for salvation. They multiply works, that is, good deeds that we do, that are necessary in order for us to be right with God. And I just want to give you an example of this. Here's what I want to do. I want to read from the Bible and show you that it teaches justification by faith alone, apart from works of the law. I'm going to read you one text. We could spend a whole series of sermons on that and... And you all have been taught well, so you're familiar with it. I'll take you to one text that teaches justification by faith alone apart from the works of the law. Then I want to take you to our confession of faith, and I want you to measure whether or not it teaches that. Then I want to walk to a document that's put out by the Jehovah's Witnesses, and I want you to hear that. And then I want you to, on justification. And then I want to present to you a Mormon document on justification. Okay, and I just want you to think now and see which one rings with Scripture. Okay? Let's go to Luke 18. Pastor Ted referred to John Piper's talk, and this is the text he preached from uh, at the conference. And so it's fresh on my mind, so I thought I would turn, turn you to it. Luke chapter 18, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Jesus is talking about how a person gets justified. That is how a person is counted righteous by God. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 and following. He also told this parable, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Stop right there. Jesus is now going to tell a parable that totally says that we cannot, that that teaches that we cannot be righteous by anything we do. Okay? He tells this parable to some who trusted in themselves, who looked to themselves so that they could be righteous enough that God would like them and accept them This tax collector, this man who did not trust in himself that he was righteous, but rather looked to God and his mercy, went down to his house justified rather than the other. There's the Bible, biblical teaching, right? Jesus Christ taught justification by faith through grace. Not based on anything that we do, but by looking to the mercy of God in Christ. Now, let's read our confession. Our, our, chap- our confession has a whole, whole chapter on this. I'm just going to read part of the first paragraph. See if this jives with your understanding of what that text just, teach, just taught. Those whom God effectually calls, he also freely justifies. Freely justifies. Not by infusing, that is, putting righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous. Is that what God did for that tax collector? He accepted him as righteous, not based on anything that he had done, but for Christ's sake alone, not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing Christ's act of obedience unto the whole law and passive obedience in his death for their whole and sole righteousness. So what our confession is teaching is that God provides the righteousness that we need through Christ and not anything in ourselves. Now let me read you from Life Everlasting in the Freedom of the Son of God by 400. Page 400, a book by the Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah God will justify, declare righteous, on the basis of their own merit, all perfected humans who have withstood that final decisive test of mankind, he will adopt and acknowledge them as his son through Jesus Christ on the basis of their own merit. Bruce McConkie, Apostle to the Mormons, in his doctrinal New Testament commentary, page 230. As with all other doctrines of salvation, justification is available because of the atoning sacrifice of Christ but it becomes operative in the life of an individual only on the condition of personal righteousness. That's heresy. That is false teaching. And it's cloaked in Christian language. It is huge, huge, hugely important that you understand the Bible. And it's hugely important that you specifically understand the person of Christ and the work of Christ. So we can we can understand what John is why John is so, so, so um, adamant about warning this church to watch themselves. Second application. Besides, we can identify false teaching by what they say about the person and work of Christ. Number two, we must know the truth, obey the truth, and love those in the truth if we would avoid being taken captive by those who would deceive us. We must know the truth, obey the truth, and walk in the truth, loving those in the truth as well, if we would avoid being taken captive by those who would deceive us. Now, why did I say that? Because that's what John says. Right? John began verse 7 with the word for. He's saying in verse verse 4 at the beginning of the chapter... The beginning of the letter, in verse 4, he says, I'm rejoicing greatly because you're walking in the truth, you're obeying Jesus' commands, you're loving one another, for many deceivers have gone out into the world. He's giving them the remedy by which they will not be deceived. He's saying to them, I'm rejoicing greatly because you're walking in the truth. It's See, here's my point. Knowing doctrine is not good enough to keep you from false teaching. Knowing doctrine is primary, but it's not ultimate. You must also apply and walk out so that you can experience the transforming power of the gospel and the power of truth in your life so that not only when you hear this false teaching will you not only say, I know that not to be true cognitively, but you'll know that not to be true experientially because you have walked with the Savior. So it's not just knowing the truth, but it's walking in that truth that you know and obeying the truth. In fact, the people who are most susceptible to false teaching within a specific Christian church are the Christians who have ungodly lives or who are not taking care of sin in their life. They're just playing with it. And they think, and then the next, the next little while, they start, to, they start to think, you know, this Christianity stuff is not really true. I think other religions or other, who's to say that they have it right? And it's all because they have not paid close attention to the Word and they have not walked it out in personal obedience. So we must take seriously personal obedience, not only because God commands it, but also because if we don't, we're more susceptible to, being, to falling prey to deception. Number three, getting Jesus right is essential to eternal life. Getting Jesus right is essential to eternal life. As John says in verse 9, everyone who does not have this teaching does not have God. John is radically intolerant. If John were to say that, this is what he says in verse 9, everyone who goes on ahead and does not teach the things that I've taught about Jesus does not have God. But he's right. Getting Jesus right is essential to eternal life. We have God. But here's your encouragement. As you know the truth as you obey the truth and as you love other Christians who are also in the truth with you, you can be assured of this. You have God. You have God. God is with you. God is in you. God is, reverently said, owned by you. He has attached himself to the true teaching about Jesus and his work. And we'll talk about why that is a little bit later. Like, why is this so important? Why has God attached himself to this? To this? Well, we've got, we need to hurry on. As John says in First John 5:12, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. If we don't have Jesus, we don't have eternal life. So that's point number one. Standing for the truth means recognizing false teaching. Point number two, standing for the truth means rejecting false teachers verse 10 and 11. Now notice in this section John offers practical steps to be taken to limit the influence of the false teachers. He says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and give him or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Now what does John mean by this? Does he mean that we are not to allow a person into our home to, say, a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness who shows up on our doorstep? Are we not to have them into our home to discuss the gospel with them? Is that what he's saying? Or is he saying something else? You, That's, that's preacher jargon. I just set you up, didn't I? <laughs> it's always the latter. It's never the first one. It's not the first one. I don't think John is talking in any way about having someone into your home. Here's why. Well, if he is talking about having someone into your home, it's not carrying the same kind of cultural weight that it did in John's day. In John's day, extending hospitality to someone, welcoming them into your home, feeding them, uh, giving them uh, shelter and, and money, And all those things, which was such a part of of ancient culture like this, would have been confirming a status upon them. This is why John, if he's saying, don't allow them into your house, he's saying, don't confirm a status of Christian on them. It's, It's going to be obvious to everyone. It's just a cultural difference that is not necessarily ours but, here, but I don't think that even applies because I don't think that's the meaning of the text. I think the primary point here is when he says, don't allow anyone into your house, he's talking about the assembly of the church. He's talking about not letting someone come who, who does not bring the correct teaching about Christ, do not let them to re- receive him into the membership of your church. Do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Now, I'm going to allow... Our good friend Mark Dever to address us on this topic. And here's what Mark says about what I'm talking about. So, what could John possibly mean when he writes, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him? Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. Does this mean we should refuse housing to someone who teaches something we disagree with about the Christian life? Should we refuse to house a holiness teacher? or a cousin who is Jewish? Should we refuse to share a meal with a non-religious friend or a Jehovah's Witness? A few observations will help us clarify what John means here. First, when John says, if anyone comes to you, he does not mean people who do not profess to be Christians. He means people who do profess to be Christians. He means people who profess to be Christians yet who teach this false doctrine. Second, when John refers to someone who comes and brings this teaching, he does not mean comes and brings in a casual sense. As in, anyone who happens to show up for a service on Sunday morning and tells a couple of people afterward the pastor was wrong. Like we shouldn't allow those people to come. No, we want those people to come. <laughs> he is re- referring to someone who comes in official teaching capacity. As a representative of even the apostles. Third. When John refers to his reader's house, remember, he means the church's meeting place. He wrote to the elect lady and her children, which, as I talked about last week, refers to the church. After all, in those days, churches met in houses for the most part. Fourth, when John forbids them to welcome or share in his wicked work, he means he does not want them to give their recognition and consent to such a false teacher. That's right. Do not want them to give their recognition or consent. Do not let him teach the congregation with his false doctrine, much less install him in a formal teaching position. Allowing him to teach is sharing in his wicked work. It is having fellowship with it. Here's how Pastor Mark closes Mark Dever. We must not have any fellowship with false teaching about the person or work of Christ. We can have open homes as we understand the word home or house today, but our pulpits must be closed to false teaching about Christ. That's his point. Do not give the man a platform to teach false doctrine. Colin Cruz, New Testament scholar and commentator, says this, The elder is calling the church to not receive heretical teachers into the assembly of the church and give them an opportunity to propagate their beliefs. That's his point. So let me conclude with three more applications for us in light of this. Number one, we learn something about church history, don't we? We learn something that from the very beginning of the church, as the church's one foundation to him says, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed, from the very, very beginning. So this, this is not popular in our day. This is not popular with my generation. We are a wimpy generation by and large. We don't contend very well. Some of you older brothers and sisters, not old, older brothers and sisters in our church don't have any problem with this. Like, of course, stand for it, stand for it. Well... In our day, there has been an erosion of that kind of conviction. And it needs to be recovered biblically. When we, there is, there are things that John says and that we must say and that I will say that are insulting to the glory of Jesus Christ and are damning to the souls of men. And I will will preach that to my death and I'll stand right up in somebody's face and say, if you teach that, you do not have God. And you have to do that if you love people. You have to do that if you love God and you love Jesus. False teaching about Jesus does not honor Jesus, and it doesn't save anybody. So we must do that. But we learned something about church history that from the very beginning it was so. So we don't need to go swimming in the early church waters to find a pure church. There never was one. There won't be one until the resurrection. It's always been a battle for the truth from the very beginning. Secondly, we, weren't, we learned something about church membership and church discipline here. That is, we learn who we ought to take in and who we need to see out. Who should we take in? Those who hold to the teaching of Christ as taught in Scripture. Who should we see out? Those who do not hold to the teaching of Christ as taught in Scripture. Number three, we also learned something about elder responsibility and congregational responsibility here, right? John is writing as a pastor to a church to tell them what their responsibility is for in regard to false teaching. Now, certainly, elders, pastors bear a responsibility. We're called to watch out for the sheep, to guard the sheep, to warn the sheep, which is what John is doing here. He wishes he could be right there with them. He says that in verse 12. I want to come to you. But he's writing a letter to them in the in the in the meantime. He's warning them. And may I also say this? This is why we need to get behind training people for the ministry well. We need to get we need to support at least prayerfully and with our enthusiasm because we recognize like the work of MCTS, for instance. We just need to we need to Praise God for that. Be thrilled about that, that we're equipping men to send them out so that they might teach correctly. Because the best defense is a good offense. So it's raising up more, teaching them correctly, and sending them out. So teaching sound, men who are able to teach sound doctrine and refute, refute those who contradict it. So we learn something about the elder's responsibility. It's to warn, to, 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 to guard the sheep, and also to raise up leaders who will teach truth. But we also learned something here about congregational responsibility as well. The congregation is ultimately responsible, according to John here, for the false teachers in their midst. This means it's critical for us to not be rude and not be, you know, super skeptical and all that with every testimony that appears out here in the lobby but we should read those with an intent to ask the question, does this person understand the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do they understand who Jesus is and what He's done? And that's loving for them, that's loving for Jesus, and that's protecting us. So we take that responsibility seriously. If you just walk by that table and say, pastor's got it, no big deal, they've interviewed him. John wants a word with you. He would like to pull you into his office and say, brother, sister, many false teachers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess Jesus Christ coming into the flesh. You say, we're in Owensboro. Many deceivers, many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess Jesus Christ who have come in the flesh. Don't be surprised if they show up on your doorstep. So why is all this so important? Look at verse 11, and with this I conclude. For whoever greets him, whoever extends this invitation, this formal public invitation to teach, whoever welcomes this individual into the household of faith, into the church, whoever greets him takes part in his wicked work. John John Stott says this, False teaching which denies Christ and so robs people of the Father is not just an unfortunate error, it's a wicked work. This is absolutely wicked. It's not just, oh, that's sad. It's an unfortunate error that they've done that. No, it's a wicked work to rob people of God. And every teaching that does not teach the biblical Christ, that does not teach who Jesus is according to the Bible, what He's done according to the Bible, does not lead to God and therefore it's wicked. Because it's teaching false things about God which does not honor God and it's damning people which is not loving towards others. So the glory of Christ is at stake. The salvation of people are at stake when we're talking about issues like this with false teaching. So I appeal to you. John would appeal to you. Walk in the truth. Know the truth. Obey the truth. Love the truth. Love those who are in the truth. And stand for the truth. Let's pray. Father we we are dealing with with foreign things tonight in many ways in our in our own experience in some ways and also in our in our culture. And we pray that all of our thinking and living would always be governed by scripture. Culture changes, but your word never changes. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of God stands forever. And we pray that we would hold to that word faithfully always in Jesus name. Amen.